I have ambitions. Ambitions to mess with where I put your coats. <laughs> Welcome to the new Emmanuel. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Mark slowly since August, and we are in Mark chapter 7 right now. Chapter 7, we're going to be going through uh, verse 24 all the way into chapter 8, verse 9. And Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews, his primary ministry was to the Jews. But Jesus did not just come for the Jews. His gospel is for all people. Jesus laid down his life on a cross, the death of a criminal for all people, for every nation, every culture, every skin color, every socioeconomic class, every political affiliation. He laid down his life for all of these people. He came for the nations. And this was God's plan from the very beginning. Isaiah prophesied, 750 years before Jesus came about what the Christ would do. And so this prophecy that Isaiah gave is the Father God talking about the Father Son. Listen to what Isaiah wrote. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. So we've only been talking about so far how Jesus has been ministering to the Jews, except for one brief story with the demoniac. But today, we're going to see a shift. We're going to see something different occur. And and I want to show you as we go through this passage where he's ministering to the Gentiles, that faith in Christ is about depending on Christ. It's about relying on who he is, trusting in him. Then I want you to see that Everything God gave to Israel is also for the Gentiles. He has given to the nations, to all of us, to every person. It is available to every person. All right, let's read our passage today. Mark 7, verses 23 into chapter 8, verse 9. And I'm reading from the ESV. So here we go. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet... He could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, 
be open. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing else to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would again use these words, use these words to penetrate our hearts. Show us the beauty, the value of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to this earth to become a man, to relate to humanity, to love us, to live perfectly, and to sacrifice himself for our sake bringing this light, this truth to all people. Preach to our hearts and change them this morning. Fill us with joy because of this message. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Jesus had been in Galilee for some time, perhaps as much as two years, ministering to the Jews there. And last week we were talking about how he had this face-off with the Pharisees, these extremely religious Jews. You know, these are, if anybody else's, these are Christ's own people. The Pharisees, the religious elite of the Jews. They have seen Jesus heal. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've heard Jesus' teaching at length. And still they oppose Jesus. Still they look to discredit Jesus. Every chance they get, they're willing to argue with Jesus. And this is how religious Galilee, the religious people in in Galilee, have treated Jesus, his own people. So with this confrontation, Jesus ends his ministry in Galilee. In fact, he takes a break from ministering to the Jews altogether. He leaves Galilee, even leaves Palestine, He travels quite a distance carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is just a word that means non-Jewish, not Jewish people, outside of Israel. So look at verse 24 again. From there, from in Galilee, confronting the Pharisees, from there he he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Tyre and Sidon, 
have a map up here. These were once great Phoenician cities. Um, Phoenicia was a massive empire a long time ago. So you can see Tyre and Sidon up here. So this uh, Phoenicia was an empire that was conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and eventually the Romans, which is where we are in Jesus' day. So uh, the Romans still referred to this little strip of land right here along Tyre, Sidon, all the way up to Beirut, actually, as Phoenicia. Um, But this border here is the greater region of Syria. So it's Phoenicia inside of Syria. All right, let's keep that in your mind. So Jesus is traveling here to Tyre and Sidon, not as a visitor. He is not a tourist. He is carrying a message with him. He's taking the gospel. And this is the message that he is proclaiming. Everywhere he goes, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, repent and believe. Repent from your former way of life. Repent from your self-reliance. Repent from all the ways that you have depended on yourself. Repent from all the ways that you have been indifferent towards God and have neglected God. Repent from your old way of life, from your sinful ways. For every person, every single person, Jew or Gentile, is sinful, has offended God. Repent. Every person is is in need of salvation. So repent and believe. Believe that Christ has come to be your salvation. Believe that only through Jesus can you have peace with God. Believe that forgiveness of sins is only found in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That through Jesus Christ, God adopts you into his family. That he makes you his people, his chosen people. Believe. So this is the gospel message that Jesus was carrying to the nations, to Galilee, to the Gentiles. And we have seen in Jesus' Galilean ministry, everywhere he went, crowds following him, crowds constantly, crowds pressing in sometimes so tightly that Jesus is nearly crushed and he has to escape in a boat, crowds pressing in so tightly and so consistently that they don't even have time to eat. They have to escape just so they can get some food and some rest. The crowds are constantly pressing in around Jesus. And so it's very likely that as Jesus is going into Tyre and Sidon, and he's healing people along the way, as he's proclaiming the message along the way, crowds of Gentiles are following him, are are pressing in, are trying to hear what he's saying, trying to see these miracles happening, happening. So it's very likely, as a result, that Jesus is trying to get a little bit of private time, maybe spend a little bit of uh, intentional teaching time with the disciples, maybe trying to get something to eat or some rest. And that's why he tries to, to, to leave the crowds and enter this house in a hidden way. Look again at verses 25 and 26. This is what happens while he's trying to hide. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus is trying to get some space, but he can't. This woman finds him. Now the woman who finds him is a Gentile. And as far as the Jews are concerned, that means she is unclean. They shouldn't even associate with Gentiles. But she's not just any Gentile. This is one of the most 
despicable kinds of Gentiles to the Jews, a Syrophoenician. There's one other biblical figure that's notable, one other Syrophoenician in the Bible, Jezebel. Do you remember Jezebel? Jezebel was a princess of Sidon, and she married the king of Israel, Ahab, for political purposes. With Jezebel came one of Israel's worst periods of time. She introduced the worship of Molech, who people would burn their children as sacrifices for. She introduced the worship of Baal. And there were incredibly depraved practices happening before these two idols. And it spread throughout Israel. It was cancer. And so from the days of Jezebel Jezebel, until the days of Jesus, the Syrophoenicians were detested by the Jews. And here comes a Syrophoenician woman falling at Jesus' feet. Now Jesus had just been teaching the the, the Pharisees and the Jews in Galilee, that there is no such thing as an unclean food. Nothing that goes into your body can make you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. And so what he's doing here by associating with this Syrophoenician is he's showing something about people too. No person, because of their nationality or because of their race or because of their culture, is unclean. Ethnicity and culture cannot make a person unclean. No people is too unclean for the family of God because God is gathering for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All people groups are included. So this woman, when Jesus basically grants her an audience, she is begging him. Begging him for a healing. Begging him just like everybody else is begging him. Everybody wants healing from Jesus. This is not unique. There's nothing special about this. She comes begging to heal her daughter. And who can blame her for this? Honestly, if your daughter, if your loved one, or if you, if you have this terrible ailment that's crippling a person or crippling you, would you also not want that person to be healed? Would you also not want this sickness to go away for them to have health, to live in freedom from that bondage of physical pain? Yes, Who can blame her for that? Who can blame anybody for that? But the unfortunate result of seeking Jesus just for his healing is that Jesus is set aside and his miracles are what are desired. Jesus becomes a genie. They fail to look at the miracles and see the greater reality and see what the greater meaning of those miracles are. Only God can perform these spectacular acts. Only God can touch a person and make leprosy leave them. Only God can cast out a demon. Only God can do these things. And if this is God, Jesus Christ, if this is God in the flesh, then that means something for your life. It means something for your life. The infinite God stepping into the finite to forgive sins, to gather a people It must mean that your perception of reality changes, that your worldview changes, if this is God. You would have to depend on him for healing, 
for repentance, for forgiveness. You would have to depend on Him. You'd have to have faith. Jesus' miracles are meant to produce faith. It is not, they are not, merely for your comfort. They are not for pain-free living. His miracles are meant to say to you, Jesus is God and he has something to say about your life. But consistently, the crowds, all they could see was Jesus the genie, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus who would do what we want him to do. So when we read Jesus' response to this woman, which is incredibly offensive, probably one of the most offensive things that Jesus ever says, when we read this, we are offended. I am offended. Let's read it. What does he say to the woman? Verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She just wants healing. And Jesus is saying, you're a dog. It is not right for me to take what is Israel's and throw it to you, Gentile dog. Jesus is not doing this, though, to be rude and to be offensive. He's doing something much deeper. He is sifting. He is getting to the heart. He's getting to the bottom trying to flip her worldview, trying to flip the worldview of all of the Jews, for that matter. Jesus answers this woman as if he were a Pharisee, as if he were a law-abiding Jew. And so he refers to her and to all Gentiles as dogs. But it's not the street-scavenging mongrels digging in the in the garbage that he's referring to. He's not using that word for dog. He's using a different word for dog, and it's actually a word that means a house pet. It's little dog. So it would be a loved house dog that is the word that he uses. And the children he's ref- in this parable are the children of Israel, the Jews. He has come to give them the gospel. He has come to bring healing to them. His healing, his miracles validate the gospel that he's proclaiming to the Jews. Listen to what Matthew, uh, what, well, Jesus is saying this to the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew's account. So this is Matthew 15, 23. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not to you Gentiles, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's answering from the position of a Pharisee as a Jew. In her response, her response is amazing. It really is astounding. Because she acknowledges that, yes, Jesus, you have come for the lost sheep of Israel. You have come to Israel first. So let the children eat first. Let them have it. But in her humility, it's amazing. She says, let them eat. And she acknowledges, I'm not a child. I'm not not Israel. I'm a dog. She's acknowledging that fact in her response. But she recognizes something that no Jew has recognized before. That Messiah 
Christ must come first to restore Israel, to bring in the sheep of Israel, and then to go out to find another fold, to bring in another sheep, to go to the nations. So she is thinking that if the dogs are the house pets, they're in the house. They belong to the master of the house. They will be fed. Just as the children are fed, the dogs too will be fed. And she, if she can just be close, will be fed too. Who else feeds the children and the dogs but the father? And the father in this story is Jesus in this parable. So she's humbling herself to say, I know I'm not one of the children, one of the Jews, but I would take even a scrap that falls from the table. If she can be close to Jesus, then surely there must be some abundance, some overflow that will spill out onto her. Surely there must be something left for her. So she's doing two astonishing things in her response. No, no one else has done this. No one else will do this. First, she enters into the parable. She answers Jesus from inside the parable. Even the disciples aren't doing that. The disciples consistently say, what do you mean by this parable? She enters into the parable, inserts herself into it, and answers from inside. She does not need an explanation to understand the parable. This is amazing. The other thing that's astonishing about her reply is that she's not looking at Jesus merely as a miracle worker, as everybody else is doing. Yes, she acknowledges that Jesus is here for the Jews and and they are God's chosen people, but she is trusting that Jesus is not excluding the Gentiles. Somehow she knows this, so she's trusting that through Jesus, she can gain God's favor. This has not happened in the book of Mark. She is trusting that through Jesus, she can gain God's favor, even if it's a scrap. She is seeing that relationship with God is extended to her through Jesus. She hears. She hears. The first person to hear and believe. So look how Jesus responds in verses 29 and 30. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Mark's recording of this is much more subdued than Matthew's. So I'm going to tell you in Matthew what Jesus says. And he would have said this right before what we read in Mark. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. O woman, great is your faith. Jesus is amazed by this woman's faith. No one in Israel, not one person, not one child at the table, not one Jew has responded to Jesus in faith. Not like this woman has. So it is astonishing that the first declaration in faith in the book of Mark comes not from a Jew, but from a Gentile. And because she sees Jesus as more than a miracle worker, as this, she sees him as the Savior of the world and the nations through whom no one can know God's favor, because she sees this and recognizes it, her daughter is healed. 
So maybe you missed what just happened there. This is, this is earth shattering, what just happened there. We can just gloss right over it, but it is so profound because Jesus does not stiff arm her like an unclean Syrophoenician Gentile, like he should, according to the Jewish tradition. She is not fed the crumbs from the table like a house pet. She is not treated as unclean. She is brought to the table, sat at the table, and given the children's portion. She, Jesus just included her in Israel's portion. All that is Israel's is being given to her in this moment. Faith and healing. So Jesus is shattering something here. He's shattering what it means to be chosen by God. Jesus just destroyed what it means to be Israel, at least as it was commonly perceived. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, rescued out of Egypt, but always Israel fell away. Israel was unfaithful, but inside Israel there was the remnant. Remember when Jezebel was there and and Elijah was wondering how on earth can Israel stick around? And God says there's still a remnant. that, That elsewhere is called true Israel. So you have Israel the nation, and inside of Israel nation you have the true Israel, the faithful ones, the remnant. And you could become true Israel. You could join yourself to God as a Gentile, If you threw away your Gentile things and you became an Israelite, you became a Jew. Now Jesus is changing that. Those those that are chosen by God, at least as the Jews would have thought, he was just talking to the most religious of them and they rejected him. So Jesus is changing what this covenant is. You do not need to be a Jew to worship God. You no longer need rituals and laws and religious practices to worship God. What you need to worship God, and the only thing that you need to worship God, the only thing that will make you clean, is faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that you need. Anyone who would ascribe a work to what it means to have faith is a liar. Faith is, or to worship God is to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be chosen by God. This is what it means to be true Israel. This is what it means to be in the family of God, having faith in Jesus So Jesus continues with his mission to the Gentiles. Look at verse 31. He continues with this gospel. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon in the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus is doing a lot of traveling here. Um, Yeah, Sidon is about 20 miles north of Tyre. And if Jesus is following the common Roman roads of the day, he would have gone from Sidon crossing this river that, it's not important, but I have to look at it anyway. (laughs) 
Leontes. He's crossing this river, Leontes, going into Caesarea Philippi, and then probably taking the road that went from there down to Bethsaida along the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis in this area. This is totally Gentile territory. Totally Gentile territory. And what happens when he gets there? Verse 32. And they brought him to a man who was, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So if you remember, Jesus had gone to this area of the Decapolis before. He went there and he healed the demoniac, the man who was breaking chains and living in the cemetery among the graves. Out of his mind, the townspeople were so afraid of him, and Jesus healed him. He cast the demon out, and he healed him, and he clothed him. And then he said, go, go tell everybody what God has done for you. And he does. He tells everybody in the Decapolis what God has done for him. So the next time that Jesus returns to the Decapolis, there are crowds there waiting for him because that one man did his job. He accomplished his mission. It's amazing. So there are crowds that greet Jesus. And in this crowd, we have a man who is deaf and has difficulty talking. He would have just called him a mute in in those days. So here I want to insert another prophecy of Isaiah's. So Jesus was just in the Phoenician lands, Tyre and Sidon. And in the times of Um, of King David, that was called Lebanon, as it's called today. So this prophecy from Isaiah is a prophecy against Lebanon and some other Gentile territories. It follows right after a, a, a really a damning prophecy against Lebanon. These words from Isaiah 35, he will come to save you, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is fulfilling this everywhere he goes in these exact Gentile territories. The deaf and the mute will indeed be healed. We're reading about it now. They will sing his praises. The woman who lived in a dark land saw with the eyes of her heart. Salvation is coming to the Gentiles. But before Jesus heals this man, this deaf, mute man, he pulls him aside from the crowd. And he really, he does some really bizarre things at that point. <laughs> um, and, and although it's bizarre at first, it's actually a very beautiful picture what he's doing with this man The man who needs healing, he would have been just another face in the crowd, just like everybody else who has come for healing. Nameless. But in pulling him aside from the crowd, he is dignifying this man as an individual. He's seeing the humanity of one man. He's seeing the needs of one man. He's a unique person. He is not a problem to be fixed. Remember, a Jew is not supposed to touch a Gentile. This is a Gentile from the Decapolis. But, this, but Jesus touches this man right at the source of his problems, his ears, his tongue. And he is radically identifying himself with this man's needs. He is touching them. His compassion is being expressed by his touch. 
He does not minister from a safe distance like a Jew. He comes close to the man and touches him. You cannot get closer. And the touch of Jesus heals him. Look at verses 35 and 36. And, he, and his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Why does Jesus command them all to silence? Why would he not want more and more people to find out about it? If he's really trying to be the salvation of Israel, of the world, wouldn't he be trying to spread it everywhere, let everybody tell it? Why is he commanding them to silence? Because the miracles of Jesus do not lead to faith. They do not produce faith in somebody without the person of Jesus. Jesus The the miracles outside of relationship does not lead a person to faith. It leads to people wanting miracles, not wanting a Savior. You cannot view Christ as a genie who just does what we want him to do when we want him to do them. We need to view him as a Savior who out of compassion touches, heals, draws us into relationship. Point us towards his humanity and his divinity. And another reason I believe that Jesus is commanding silence is because the cross and the resurrection have yet to happen. Real faith in Jesus is very difficult without the cross and resurrection. And they are still ahead. So the word going out about Jesus' miracles will be very difficult to receive without the cross and without the resurrection. But this crowd is not far from faith. Their response is amazing to Jesus. Uh, Let's read verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So yeah, they're astonished at Jesus, but so were the Jewish crowds. But their declaration of he has done all things well is unique so far. They're beginning to see something about him. They're beginning to understand. Faith in Jesus may just be the most difficult thing in the entire world. The disciples have been closer to Jesus than anybody else for maybe two years at this point, and they're still not getting it. They still are not having faith in Jesus. Conversely, bizarrely, this Syrophoenician woman, this deaf man in far off dark Gentile lands, faith is springing up in them. Faith is springing up in this crowd. And here's why it's difficult. Because if Christ is God, then you are not the ultimate authority over your life. And in fact, you have offended the ultimate authority over your life. That is not an easy pill to swallow. You are not the ultimate authority, but you have offended the ultimate authority. So, how do we do this? How do we have faith? What is faith? 
If proximity to Christ doesn't seem to matter, what do we have? Closeness to Jesus, to Jesus has nothing to do with nearness, with proximity, with physical nearness. Faith is believing that only Jesus can give a person hearing, can give a person understanding. Only Jesus can open the eyes of faith. And so if you aren't believing this, that, you're, that Christ is the ultimate authority over your life, if you're not believing that, get down on your knees and say, God, help me see, give me eyes that will see, give me ears that will hear, that I might understand. Because it's incredibly offensive to the natural man. Trusting in Jesus for truth, for ultimate reality. That's what we need. God did become a man. And he lived the perfect life. And he experienced humanity. And he had compassion on humanity in the most tender and loving ways. And then he died on a cross. So that we could be forgiven. So that the authority, the ultimate authority that we have offended will no longer be offended by us. But see us as righteous because he sees Christ instead of us. And he rose again. And in rising, defeating the penalty of our sins. So that we could live with him for all eternity. Life eternal. That's what we have faith in. That's what we want. It's impossible for us to make that happen in us. So we must cry out to God for this reality to take hold of our hearts. It is intimacy with Christ that we must seek. So the compassionate healings of Jesus, the beginnings of faith in the crowd, it's undoubtedly led to another crowd, a larger crowd. And this crowd they too are beginning to understand because they're hanging on every word of Christ's. I was going to read this passage again. I, I won't. Verses 1 through 9. But the first thing to point out is we've got a parallel here between when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the Jews, to when he's feeding the 4,000 here, these Gentiles. When the Jews heard the 5,000, they responded in amazing way, and they were astonished by Jesus. And so they wanted to take Jesus and by force make him their king so that he could overthrow Rome. But here, with these 4,000, they have a different response. They stick around for three days to listen to Jesus. Three days, no break. They're in a desolate land, there's no restaurants around. And they're hungry. So hungry that Jesus believes they're going to faint on the way back home. That's hungry. And they're soaking up everything that is saying as if his words are the very bread of life. Their spiritual hunger is being satisfied in Jesus. This, Jews have not done this. The Gentiles are doing this. They're receiving him. This crowd of people, they most definitely have sacrificed things to stay and listen to Jesus because they have other things going on in their life that they're not doing, so they can sit around in the wilderness listening to him. Certainly they've sacrificed their eating because Jesus satisfies in a way that bread cannot. 
There's something in him that, there's, there's something in their souls that's stirring as he speaks. They're, they're experiencing a joy, a hope, a love that springs out of everything that he's saying, every word that he delivers out of who he is. And they're eating as much of this as they can. But compassionately, Jesus recognizes that this isn't their only need, that they have physical needs too. And so he satisfies their physical hunger as well. He satisfies needs of soul and body. That's what our Christ does. When he invites us into relationship, he intends to satisfy all of who you are, the whole of who you are as a person. We just have to come to him with our needs. The other very important thing to note about this feeding of the 4,000 is that, again, Jesus is giving to the Gentiles everything that has been given to the Jews. He is satisfying these people because they have come to him in faith. If we just come to him, knowing that he is the the only satisfaction that we can find, he is waiting to heal our blindness, to give us sight. He's waiting to restore our hearing. He does it spiritually. He will do it physically in this life or the next. So whether you have been in church for 40 years or if this is your first day, it does not mean you're close to Jesus. Coming to church every day, every week, will not make you close to Jesus. Jesus does not want a people that are going to follow him because it's convenient. Jesus does not want a people who will follow him only when they want him to do some miracles, only when they want him to heal, only when they want him to take care of their finances. He does, something, he, he does want a people who come to him simply because they want him. They want his words. Where else have we to go? Who else have the words of life? Going to church, being a Jew, being a certain nationality, none of that guarantees faith. He wants a people that will sit at his feet and be satisfied, like this crowd of 4,000. To be dependent on him, place our needs and desires on him, and watch him meet them in the most amazing and supernatural ways, like he did for the Syrophoenician woman, like he did for the blind and deaf man, or the deaf and mute man. It's not a gospel, though, of health and wealth and prosperity. It's a gospel of laying aside everything that you have, everything that you are for the sake of Christ. In fact, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Jesus bids you come, he bids you come and die. Die to who you are without Christ. Die to your self-reliance. Die to your independence. Die to your hopes and your dreams. And live in Christ. Live in what He has called you to. Live in dependence on Him. Live in His will. And know freedom. He wants the people that have come to Him for salvation and relationship. Being close to Jesus means that you trust in Him for all of your needs in life. Even your need to live. Most of all, it means, though, that you trust in Christ for your forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins, for peace with God, 
that you look to Jesus for satisfaction and joy and not all the things that the world is offering you. Then his righteousness becomes your righteousness. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. He gives you a life with him that will never end, that is full of joy and satisfaction and difficulty because it's hard to come and die. That's what he bids you to. That's what he bids these Gentiles to. Do not let indifference reign in your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Oh God, would you stir something in our souls that if we do know you and have known you for many years, you would once again rivet us with the truth of of who Christ is and what he has come to do. Rivet us with the gospel. If these words are new to us this morning, may it penetrate all of the the barriers that, that lie in the way that you would give our blind eyes sight. Help us to understand. Help us to know what it means to come and die that we might live with you. Thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. At this moment, I'd like to ask the worship team to come back up. The first of the month, we have 